Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. One, two, three. Almost knocked over my coffee. <laughs> a rough start. <laughs> Good morning, Mike. Good morning. And so uh, I heard a I heard a sermon in uh, just recently, and uh, it was talking about a number of things. But one of the things that came up was self righteousness, and uh, it sort of proposed that. A solution to self-righteousness is to understand, and I, I believe this is a Tim Keller quote, but to understand that the gospel is, is bad news before it is good news. You know, and, and obviously right there we have this idea that your self-righteousness can be solved by understanding uh, you know, you're sinful and only Christ has, uh, has redeemed you there. Uh, interestingly, a buddy shot me a text after and he goes, man, that, that sounds like uh, pretty two-chapter gospel stuff right there. You know, I, I wonder how that could be expanded to four chapters, and it and it made me just step back and think about, hmm, you know, self righteousness. How how is that? Where do we see that in in four chapters? I mean, it's it's obvious in two. And uh, for those of who of you who are listening and aren't familiar, you know, the two chapter gospel being we've sinned, Jesus has saved us. That's commonly what we hear. But the four chapter gospel being uh, what Mike you're known for, all this can will. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. We have several conversations on that that uh, listeners can go check out. But I'm curious, Mike. You know, thinking about that that frame, self righteousness in four chapters. You know, how, how would you maybe propose a, a different solution to that? Yeah, and and hopefully what we're proposing isn't something Mike's proposing, but actually we're standing on the shoulders of giants who have come before us, and uh, so. I would suggest to you, we'll stand on a few giants that predate the Enlightenment. Uh, one, for example, we read in Scripture, do not be excessively righteous. Why would you ruin yourself? So self-righteousness is understood more in the wider gospel as excessively righteous. And there is such a thing. Only God, in other words, can be absolutized. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. If you love righteousness with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you'll invariably make an idol out of it. And once you make an idol out of it, idols blind. That's the power of an idol. An idol does not announce itself. Hey, Mike, you're a consumerist. An idol doesn't announce itself. So, uh, uh, self-righteousness is just what the Bible calls excessive righteousness. So there's another way to think about this whole issue. First of all, George Kennan, K-E-N-A-N, wrote a, a powerful paper years ago after World War II because, uh, regarding the world they're in. Because if you're familiar with World War, the end of World War II, things quickly fell apart. Uh, not only um, had Nazism just raped and destroyed Europe, and a good book on this is Tony Jutt's book, J-U-D-T, Post-War. And it shows a family dragging an old wooden cart through the rubble of some German town. And you just think, how did they ever rebuild this? But uh, Kennan, because, you know, the Soviet menace immediately um, uh, came up. And uh, Kennan said, you know, in the Enlightenment, I'm paraphrasing, but it's always, we just got to understand each other. So how can we understand this? And his point was, no, we understand each other perfectly well. The Soviets want to rule the world. So he came up with a policy called containment. Let the thing collapse under its own weight. Sure enough, he was right. Uh, Jews understand this. Uh, they go, you know, the key here with our um, neighbors is not to understand each other. We understand each other perfectly well. 
many of our neighboring countries want to annihilate us. And so, and the enlightenment, so if we just understood each other better, I, I don't think that's the key. So part of a two-chapter gospel often is unwittingly buried or arises out of the muck of the enlightenment. And so it uses enlightenment phraseology without even knowing it. Uh, that's why uh, C.S. Lewis, who was not an enlightenment man, and was aware of the enlightenment, and understood this enchanted background, and wrote about it in the discarded image, that that image was discarded, would say, it's more important that meaning is found in the imagination. And you have to widen your imagination as to what is going on in terms of uh, why people become excessively righteous, um, how this works out and what it looks like. So you can't actually see that unless you widen your imagination. And so it's fascinating to me in this whole thing about uh, excessive righteousness is how it blinds a nation. And what Jesus does when he comes into the temple. So, Pat, I just skipped across a stone across many, many waves, took this thing out into the ocean and put us in the temple. I'm sure you have some questions before <laughs> we uh, walk with Jesus into the temple. Yeah, so just to make sure I'm following, because, uh, yeah. yeah, we just went through a lot. So yeah. um, one of the things you said was, with the Enlightenment, there's often this idea that we can solve a problem just by understanding this other concept or this thing. If, if I can just get my head, if I can wrap my head around that, then That's I will it. have my solution. And, yep. you know, I, I often hear this also when it comes to politics, et cetera. But if you can, you know, the classic, if you can enlighten the masses, if you can, if we can just get everyone to be educated a certain way, we wouldn't have these problems. Uh, and I think that's what you're saying, both in the World War II context, um, but then also with this, you know, Christianity has bought into the same thing. That's why we think the answer to self-righteousness could be just understanding or wrapping my head around this thing. That's, is that's that right. correct? That's right. Okay. Augustine wrote, if you can understand it, it's not God. Sure. You can't wrap your head around God and how yeah, the eternity, how the, the mystery. That's right. That's right. And so the Enlightenment soaked the mystery out of just about everything. And um, yeah, so that's exactly. Yeah, you just quoted our good friend Thomas Jefferson. Enlighten the people generally, and tyranny will disappear. And and I think where you're going here is this. It's not so much wrapping my head around, but if you can. As, as you said before, widen the lens or even widen your imagination. So that's right. Not necessarily understanding something, but actually changing your imagination about something. The 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 picture in your in your head about something is, it's it's subtly similar, but it's it's uh, very different in terms of of the impact. Is that that's similar? right? Okay, that's why it's called widening. Is um, I see. I'm just old enough to remember when. Um, <laughs> The flat screen TVs came in because remember the difference the, the old in fact sometimes oh, go to a yeah. rental place on the beach you go look at that 80s TV or 70s TV so what happened with flat screen TV that's rectangular right yeah. in terms of viewing yeah widescreen that's right and why was it called widescreen um, what, what were you watching in the, every TV up to that point like almost You're, like a square. Yes, and so what happened was both ends of the uh, picture were uh, people didn't know were actually cut off. Yeah, to make it fit in the screen, right. so it was formatted in such a way. So if you ever went to uh, when I was a little kid, I went to see you know, Ben Hur at the theater, and you know, probably most listeners probably don't remember Ben Hur. I'm not that old; I didn't know him, but I saw the movie, and uh, you got great scenes of them coming around the big Coliseum. You watch in television and the Coliseum stands are gone. You're just watching the racetrack because it, it, both ends had to be clipped off to fit mm -hmm. the TV. And so once they introduced flat screen and what we're used to today is now we see the entire picture. Yeah. It's, and so the, uh, the race course in Ben-Hur, is that's true. It's just not the big picture. Mm. And so when we say two-chapter gospel, we're not saying it's false. 
you believe that Jesus died for your sins and embrace him, you're going to go to heaven. But it clips off the power of what's going on in creation and prior to creation, and it clips off what eternity is about and how it's spent and what we're doing spins out into eternity. It just it clips it out. It, 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 I think it's the rise of what you're seeing or exile is saying, if God made us so that Jesus could save us because he knew we were going to sin, so we end up in heaven. Wouldn't it have been far more economical to make us in heaven where we wouldn't sin? <laughs> yeah, I've, I've almost heard that word for word. Because <laughs> I keep asking you that question and you don't have an answer. <laughs> but did Jesus die for sins? Absolutely. Are we sinners? Absolutely. It's absolutely true. But it's just absolutely inadequate. And that's what we mean by widening the imagination. This is why Lewis said, reason gives us truth, but you can't reason out the whole thing if it's not going to be meaningful because imagination is the source of meaning. It's in our imagination that words go, ah, now I see what's going on. Now I... So you have to widen your imagination. This is we are indebted to Louise Cowan, professor at the University of Dallas. She came to faith through reading Shakespeare, by the way. Hmm. And, um, and she wrote a book called Introduction to the Classics. And uh, she was the one who said, faith is a certain widening of the imagination. And so uh, self-righteousness, is there such a thing? Of course. And in the two-chapter gospel, which really arose from the Enlightenment, tends to say, we're going to, if we can just understand it, then we can beat it. It will disappear. If we can wrap our head around it, it will go away. And in fact, here's the real conundrum. When you bias your left hemisphere like that, and you, quote, wrap your mind around it, that is, you gain knowledge what did Paul warn about knowledge? It puffs up. We actually become more self-righteous. Hmm. All right, so before I uh, derailed <laughs> us. You so he didn't derail. No. No, we're <laughs> heading towards we're heading towards the temple, but yeah. the reason we're taking our time is uh, First of all, we got to come up with stuff for an hour. We don't know what we're doing. <laughs> Quick, Mike, filler, filler. <laughs> <laughs> we're like the newspaper. <laughs> uh, yeah, where were we? Yeah, uh, no, these things don't happen overnight. They don't happen overnight. The, the, the Judeans were 500 years walking into exile. It didn't happen overnight. After they came back, the nation of Israel walked 500 years into their blindness by the time Jesus arrives on the scene. We've been 500 years walking into our blindness. And it's got to be called out as that, exactly. It's blindness. And pride, self-righteousness is blinding. I mean, if it's one thing we're seeing over the last 20, 30 years, both in Catholic and Protestant leaders, is their incredible blindness of presuming their, their sex life is private and doesn't impact their ministry. There's not one individual I know who, when they started out in ministry, would have ever presumed that. Hmm. Not one. They would have been horrified. But I first read about this way, way back, and I'll date myself here, but the Jim and Tammy Baker story, because um, one writer wrote about it. He met them when they first started. their was actually radio ministry, and then became TV. And they were apparently sweet, charitable, humble. That's a good kind of righteousness. And he said he met him a few years later and he was horrified. But of course, at that point, they're taking license in terms of 
sex, power, finance, and, and surrounded themselves with yes people who defended everything they did. So this doesn't happen overnight. And uh, I would urge readers to read Paralandra, C.S. Lewis second in his three, uh, the space trilogy is called. And there's a retelling of the fall and you will find yourself rooting for the green lady. Come on, don't, don't, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. But it's a long, long way. It's a, as the writer in, in the psalmist wrote, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and then things collapse. So, Pat, righteousness, self-righteousness, excessive righteousness is how it's called. So this Sunday is the cleansing of the temple. If your church follows the liturgical calendar, and a lot of churches, um, they then preach homilies from the liturgical calendar, which I really like. Um, so, uh, first of all, I'm sure you're going, what's a homily? <laughs> Well, so those grits you buy at the store. Have you ever had homily grits? Uh, That's no. a joke. <laughs> <laughs> What's the difference between a homily and a sermon? <clears throat> oh, that's that's a great question. Uh, I I always thought for a while until you said something different. But <laughs> originally, I thought oh, no. uh, a homily was basically a Catholic sermon. It was just short and sweet. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Homilies, if I. If I don't want to be accused of reductionism, but sermons tend to come out of the idea of what we just talked about. Uh, if we can help you understand this passage, it'll change your life. And so we take what uh, a writer says in two minutes and we take 30 minutes to explain it. Which typically, if you're in a marriage, uh, one spouse isn't going to like the other spouse doing that after a while. <laughs> I have a joke. My engineering friends, if you ask them, um, hey, where's the closest gas station? They tell you the history of Annapolis. <laughs> so uh, um, sermons, especially today, tend to be to impart information to foster understanding. A homily tends to widen the imagination to foster curiosity and wonder. Mm, that's, that's helpful. So a homily does not believe enlighten the people generally and tyranny will disappear. It is rather, if they're well done, is to widen the imagination, making truth, meaning, Full. because you can know the truth of something but it's meaning less and that's the only way that I can begin to fathom why I sin why anyone sins why you can be a ministry leader and be deep into porn for example because you would know for certainty the scriptures do not lust after lust. You've committed adultery if you do. Let the marriage bed be undefiled. And yet the people go off and do it. Why? Because that truth is not meaningful. It has lost most of its meaning, although it is true. Truth that is meaningful comes from the imagination where you imagine, for example, what the writer of Proverbs wrote when he wrote that the woman whose lips are alluring, whose body is sensuous, leads you to her bed with perfume and rose petals, and just at the moment of climax, you look down and see the bedposts are sunk in Sheol, and you go, oh my God. 
you can't be imagining that and start heading into porn because that OMG would horrify you and literally change your bodily impulses. We don't need to go into what all that means. You can imagine it. So this Sunday, righteousness and the cleansing of the temple. Tell me, Pat, without making up some kind of cockamamie story, what's going on with this uh, temple thing? What's the point of this story? Biblical trivia here. Putting you on the spot here. <laughs> so Jesus uh, walks onto the scene. There are merchants in the temple um, just, yeah, selling a bunch of different items. I believe they're they're typically, the way I've uh, heard sermons on this in the past, but I believe they're selling uh, different elements that are involved in worship and whatnot, but they're selling it in the temple. Jesus goes in flip some tables and uh, kind of goes <laughs> off. <laughs> Sounds like he's going to Vegas. <laughs> Spins a few of that wheels, makes a little money. That's right. No, he uh, he storms in and and basically casts a bunch of merchants out of the temple. And um, we see in there uh, in, in angry Jesus, these, yep. the, yeah, the angry Jesus. Okay. So which raises the question. So what? What's that yeah. got to do with you? Or, you know, typically we hear, we're not making fun of pastors. I was a pastor for eight years. But they typically say, and now how does this apply to our life? So, all right. If that's the point of the story, well, how does that apply to our life? Yeah. the So often you'll hear topics about anger, self-righteous anger. I've heard that justified as why self-righteous anger is a thing. Or I'm sorry, that is why righteous anger is a thing. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, so I've, I've heard that as an explanation. Um, obviously, we you know there's an element of blending commerce with church is something that's been extrapolated. Um, uh, yeah, that's just a couple. Yeah. Now that I think about it, it's actually a good biblical justification for why men like doing demo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There we go. That's the point of this story. So uh, let's close in prayer. Um, <laughs> go remodel. <laughs> there you go. Chip Gaines, you are God's man. Uh, yeah, you know. So there you go. There's this is uh, a often righteousness, self righteousness. What's I've heard this innumerable times. You know. So I was really angry about so and so. Was that was that righteous anger or yeah. was that? fleshly anger, which would be excessive righteous, self-righteous, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just going, really? <laughs> really? we got to understand anger? Um, that's the point. Let me see if I can widen your imagination. Left out a few elements here. Why the temple? Why? why well, I mean, I'm sure this stuff's going on all through the city. Why, when he walks into the temple? And what is this? Uh, but let's start right there. Well, why? What's the temple depict? Um, generally, you know, religious practice. Uh, you could even go, it depicts the body of, of Christ. Um, the body of believers is, you know, we, we now are the temple. Um, Good. Yeah. So typically for the average believer, just like you, you really got to work at it to try to get to that place. It doesn't just right. pop right out of him. So that, that tells you something right there. That's not second nature to you. Yep. So for the Jews, here's what was second nature. Jerusalem, the temple does depict the bride and a good book on this is our bodies tell god's story christopher west but you can go from creation and then you go all the way through to revelation where i saw the new jerusalem coming down as a bride in her adornment and so jerusalem and the temple depicted the bride, this is why when Christ betrothed us at the cross, the veil, which is a depiction of the hymen, was torn. 
as what happens in the first time husband and wife share their love physically, consummate. And so you have the temple. This is why before God deports the Judeans, he says, I am going to devastate my bride. I'm going to divorce her. And sure enough, when the Babylonians come in, they reduce the temple to rubble. They devastate Jerusalem. He kind of even comes in and says, they're going to rape your women. I mean, it is horrific. So a lot of times people imagine, oh, la-di-da-di-da, we go up into Babylon for a few years. So the temple depicts the bride. When you have money changers, you're depicting prostitution. So this is not unlike if um, I'm out putzing around and I pick up truck one day and I go by kind of a seedy part of town in Annapolis and there is Kathy on a street corner. Yeah, it's a different picture. <laughs> Entirely different. Keep going. Because <clears throat> now, this is what we mean by the power of imagination. You just said that's a different picture. Exactly. That's not the picture the disciples have. Now, but there's a good news and a bad news in this story, too. But that's the order it goes in. So follow along. So do you remember, first of all, what does he take? He picks up something and makes something. Because this is his bride. And as you know, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 7, in marriage, like for Kathy and I, Kathy's body is mine and my body is hers. We are only the body of Christ because we are first married to Christ. A woman's body is not yours unless you're first married to her. So the sequence is wed, then body. We're not the body of Christ unless we are the bride of Christ. And so this is Jesus' body, his bride, just as his body is ours, as he is the groom and we are his bride. And so he picks up and makes a whip, a cord of whips. Why is that significant? There's a lot of ways to trash a temple, which is being trashed. Why that? Why a whip? So it's a whip of core, a cord of whips. Cord of whips. To start to cleanse his wife's body, just as if I saw Kathy, no, I wouldn't whip her, that's the point. I would try to bring about her salvation. And give, I, would, I would come up and hug her, hold her, and put her in the car and drive her away. That's what's going on here. So Jesus has to break the cords of what's going on here. If you want to put it that way, that's too delicate a way to put it. You make a cord of whips. You're like a bad dude, man. You are angry. But why that? What's going to happen a week later, two weeks later? He's he's going to get that that same punishment. There you go. And so what he does for his bride's body to restore her will be done to him because we are his body and his body is ours. So he will take that adultery and put it on his own body and have himself whipped by the very thing that he uses to cleanse the temple. Now well, the story gets even better. What happens next? It happens to the disciples. So good Jews and something magnificent happens. They remember something. What do they remember? I'm definitely not picturing it, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Says they remembered, oh, zeal for thy house will consume me. 
Wow. You happily married, Pat? Yeah, I'd say so. Does your bride intoxicate you? As the psalmist wrote? Yeah, you could say that. So zeal for her consumes you. Hmm. Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and he is mine. You go out one day and there's your wife prostituting herself. That's a different kind of anger. That's an anger of, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, come home. We're going to fix this. I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'll lay down my life. We will be wed again. So the disciples remembered, this is what happens, Pat. This is the difference between understanding, like you go through a quote, it's called, I hate it, it's called a text. And you turn it into bullet points. Point one, anger is inherently good. Point two, righteous anger is bad. Point three, we must be righteous so that our anger is righteous. Something like that. Something pretty much forgettable. Because first of all, in the heat of moment of anger, unless you're some kind of different person, you ain't being rational. You're not pulling out three-point out and say, okay, right now I am so PO'd at that person. Let me think this thing through. First of all, God can get angry. I can get angry. Blah, 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 blah. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, <laughs> I'm just thinking of all the times I've been angry. I go, it was rational. Not... Yeah, <laughs> you're way past that. That horse has left the barn. So, you're saying here there is a uh, there is a thing, there's things such as righteous anger, of uh, course. But the the way it's often used, what is is probably not in line with the story you just told which is of a, a a lover and his bride and seeing his bride as a, prost a prostitute and wanting to do nothing but uh then give himself to be wed to her like that's that, right i don't i don't think that's the visual i would picture when it comes to times in the past where i've thought myself to be self-righteously or um, to, to thought myself to be righteously angry that's right um, Mostly because our anger tends to be with people we disagree with and yeah. this way to put them in their place and uh, those daggum progressives or something like that versus <laughs> uh, just pulling some out, rabbit out of the hat here. Yeah, it's different than uh, finding your wife in bed with another man. Right. But yeah. loving her so much that your heart breaks, but you're yeah. still angry. Yeah. Because you're, you know why you're angry? Uh, a lot of reasons. What? <laughs> How, you're angry how if you thinking? if you love your wife you're angry of what's happening to her hmm. yes she's responsible yes but the fact of the matter is anyone with a wide enough imagination knows all the things that are getting disordered mangled torn up inside that soul It's not just sex. It is what the Bible calls idolatry. It's what the Bible calls the scarring of the conscience. It's what the Bible calls it blinds you because sex is blinding. It can be blindingly beautiful. But it's still blinding, even if it's not beautiful. It um, so you can see so this is if this goes so deep into our body is why we urge readers to pick up and actually read and actually then ponder Christopher West's most recent book. Our bodies tell God's story. Hit pause for a moment here, Pat, and ask yourself this question. Just suspend all judgment. And assume that statement is true. Our bodies tell God's story. 
when Jesus' bride is sleeping around, what is the gospel story our body is telling other people? Pretty astounding, isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Pretty astounding. Pretty astounding. This Monday, we're going to go through a workshop with subscribers. More is going to come out is 70% of evangelical men admit to either pretty regular dalliance pretty deep dive or addiction to pornography. Yet somehow it doesn't affect their life, their ministry. It's not me. That's not meaningful. So they can be sleeping around in their imagination. 40 to 50% of women, it's the fastest growing percentage. 37% of clergy, pastors and priests. Over one third will stand before us teach, help us try to, quote, understand the Word of God, and they're blind to how, if Jesus showed up today, he would be angry because he would see his bride, the Bible says, Jeremiah, whoring or an adulteress. But, assuming she can get away with it because no one sees. Let me say that again. Assuming she can get away with it because no one sees. And guess what Jesus saw when he walked into the temple? No one saw this. No one is horrified. No one. That ought to make you angry. Then the disciples go, oh my goodness, now we remember. See how the widening of the imagination? Because guess who didn't see it? The Jews at the time. There you go. There you go. You know, so so thinking about self righteousness here, just just trying to make sure I'm I'm understanding. There's an extent to which Jesus here, what what we often see is that righteousness is uh, Jesus has a zeal, and so he goes and um, drives you know drives uh, the merchants out, and so there's mm-hmm. that sense of cracking the whip. And, uh, and so if I'm oh, it's not here, the merchants, by the way, but one more thing, I'll just sure uh, money changers. Why was that important? What were they changing money for? They brought their money in and they, and they got pigeons, doves, whatever to go in to make an offering, right? Which is what was that comes out of Revelation and all the rest. It comes out of First Corinthians 3. We as a bride are preparing for our wedding day by we're preparing our dowry. So this is the, I'll use this kind of language because you find about, here's the slut woman, the slut wife, the adulteress, going in the last second, just coming up with some stuff, some cheap offering to present. Mm. Now, I don't fault, and Jesus doesn't fault the average Jew because because they've been led to believe this is okay. By who? Leaders in the faith. There you go. So it's been the leaders who are saying, either implicitly or explicitly, hey, I'm I'm deep in this stuff. I'm deep into porn. Doesn't affect my ministry. So just come, make your offering. We'll make it even convenient. We'll have the first DoorDash. Just show up and pay as you go. Mm. Yeah, which you you could see in uh, church history, even in uh, past dealings with our faith. 
That's right. This is why that 500-year cycle came to an end at the end of the medieval ages. It was just thoroughly grossed out, corrupted. And God said, that's it. This cycle's being shut down. Time for new mustard seeds. So the understanding of self or of righteousness that I often hear, and particularly righteous anger, is you know, Jesus walked in and he he saw all of the bad that was going on, and it it bothered him so much that he was angry and aggressive. And that's the the Jesus we see. And so therefore my translation could be that's a reason to be so angry at the state of the world today or what's going on or wanting to speak out or stand up and, and all of those. But what you're saying is if we widen our imagination, we see that that even that is a truncated righteousness because the true righteousness is Jesus walking to the temple with so much zeal for his bride that yes, he, he, he drives out and he's angry, but bigger picture so that he goes and gives his life, lays his life down. That's the fulfillment of, of righteousness. So if I'm going to carry it to my true end, it's, it's not for me to, in my righteousness, stand up or speak out. It's to actually lay my life down. And that's the part I'm missing. Is that right? That's right. This is um, exactly. Bingo. It's the, uh, so just as you are about to gather up your wife in your arms to bring her home to literally the idea is kinsman redeemer, that the pimp says, hey, she owes me $2,000. And you go, I'll pay it. But I'm getting her out of this. Hmm. This is why we mentioned it a couple of times, but uh, Jonathan hates book H.I. H-A-I-D-T, so don't think love, hate, hate, H-A-I-D-T, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, is actually so good. Because people who are excessively righteous, self-righteous, works this way. I'm righteous, you're not. No. My party's righteous, the other party isn't. My faith is righteous, yours isn't. So self-righteousness is, I'm righteous, you're not. Another good little article on this from The Atlantic years ago by uh, um, Bernard Lewis, wonderful writer. And it's called, I'm right, you're wrong, go to hell. That's, that's excessive righteousness. Self-righteousness never imagines that maybe I'm not the one who's righteous here. And that was the Jewish leaders. But I dare say, that's not unlike our age today, where that typifies an awful lot of American Christianity and the divisiveness, particularly when it comes to politics, which is why the subtitle is of Hate's book is why good people are divided over religion and politics. And... Um, if you're self-righteous in your religion, you're going to be self-righteous in your politics. And, and, uh, and uh, it, it, it's particularly grievous to me. And yes, it does make me angry that you have a whole swath of believers who we saw prostituted themselves to a president where they said, ah, oh, the private life doesn't matter. He's going to put judges on the bench. And that will save America. So, my goodness, does that not remind us of the temple? It doesn't matter if you're prostituting yourself or not. Just make your offering, because we're going to get this and this right, and we'll be fine. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And and I think not only do you see it on both sides, but yeah, you're you're right with with Christianity the frustration is often with uh with the lack of righteousness in the other and, that's and right. not seeing That's uh, right. Yeah, a widened those dagum liberals or those yeah. dagum this or that and right. um and you know 
we're being kind, we're using the kind of the colloquial, but the, 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 what's boiling in your blood really is, God damn them. And that's just, that ought, that's why you see zeal. See, the, the reason he, he tears this place up is because what's driving it is not the anger. What's driving it? Love. Zeal. Zealous love. Zealous love makes you jealous for your lover. And that's exactly, the Bible says God is a jealous lover. There's such a good thing. There's a good thing. Jealousy can be a good thing. And zealous love. I, I don't really get much into people saying, no, I'm passionate about this, passionate about that. The Bible overwhelmingly says passion is an animalistic thing. And animals just, that's not that's not anchored in some kind of a moral universe. That's instinctive. It's uh, it's actually relates to uh, sexual consummation. And uh, first of all, he can't be passionate all the time. At least from everything I can tell in my own life, you can. But uh, zeal's different. Zeal, a zealous love, is jealous for your lover. And um, if it consumes you, you're right, Pat, love. And so you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And you love your neighbor. But you're not, that's just, it's just second nature. And it, and it widens your imagination. So you walk into a temple and you see what other people don't see. And you preach a passage, you see what other people don't see. Hence, the people, not the really, well, even the religious leaders, but the people said, that's funny, this guy, he's not wearing all the clerical robes, but dadgummit, when he teaches, it's got authority. It just is meaningful. That's what authority means, by the way. It's, it's meaningful. You know, what you said earlier about idolatry and you never see it, it's really, it's kind of fascinating to think about where you went there with with righteousness and self righteousness, um, but but it leads to it's not that it leads to contempt. It's that we I think mistake contempt for righteousness when we when yeah. we picture the the story of the temple. We think uh, we put ourselves in this position of yeah, I'm righteous and you are wicked, evil. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's fascinating, especially to think of as believers uh, how we are blind to how contemptuous we are. That's right. And it can be a contempt comes out in, oh man, I mean, it's so toxic. It leaks out in a hundred different ways. It can be uh, everything from uh, uh, you poor idiot that you don't understand what I understand. Yeah. Or um, it can be condescending or it can just be uh, just making it a point that your eyes don't meet and you sort of ignore that person in the room so that hopefully you get the vibe what are you doing here and don't dare raise your voice i worked once in a ministry and the leader i'll never forget one day i just suggested here was some of the feedback and he let me know in unknown certain terms a that w wasn't asked for and uh it's um, you run a risk if you do that again i will ask you my opinion when i'm ready to ask for your opinion but otherwise you don't have that kind of standing to suggest that and it was put in very polite terms but it was basically do you want to keep working here I had it happen once in a sermon review process with a team. And the person who had given the message the week before let it be known no on certain terms. Um, God gave me that message, and uh, this is not what we do in the church. Oh, boy. Now he's a very bright, good man, but he let me know in no uncertain terms. That's out of bounds. 
okay. Hmm. I wish I had that kind of self-awareness. That's not self-awareness. <clears throat> That's self-righteousness. I was the problem. Now, the truth is somewhere in the middle on these things. I'm not saying that the comments or suggestions I had were necessarily right. They just suggested you may not be entirely on top of this. I've found repeatedly in ministry some of the uh, more well-known people I've been around, they haven't gotten a decent review in 35 years. And so just over time, you just begin to assume, I'm on top of this. So if you suggest, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that was helpful, it was right, it actually depicted what's going on. You get this, you get the either the furrowed brow of suspicion, who are you? Or the raised brow of how dare you? So we're not that different. And it's a fascinating, if your church follows the liturgical calendar, whether you'll hear even inklings of this, this Sunday, because there is one school of Christianity that will go to absurd lengths writing books about trying to understand and get the fine line between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. All of which will be, at least in my life, of absolute no help when I'm in the midst of being angry at Kathy, or she's in the midst of angry at me. Or it'll be a story more of, are we in the same place that the Jews were in 33 AD of a bride who is prostituting herself and actually thinks she can get away with it? 